Hey, welcome. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Substance. Uh, glad you're here. Before we kick off the sermon today, I want to, uh, I want to invite up um, our educators. So anybody that is connected with any form of education, as it's all kicking back into gear, I notice nobody is standing up really quick as I'm saying this. Thanks, Kyle. Come on up. But we would love you to come up. We want to, uh, we want to pray for you. We want to uh, thank you for your work and your service to our community and also our church. Look how many educators we have. It's amazing. Yeah, give them a hand. As everything is just getting ready to kick back into gear for all these women and men uh, going into the fall here. And again, uh, because, you know, back in the day, uh, school would start in the fall when I was a kid. Now it starts in June, it feels like. Um, so they, they've already been back at it for a little while, but we just want to acknowledge uh, just the challenges and the opportunities that uh, rep is represented here uh, for their role that God has called them to, uh, to minister and to teach uh, the kids of our community. And so um, would you just join me in, in praying for these men and women and their unique role, that God would strengthen them, that he would give them the ability to have gospel fruit. They need to be wise in how they do that. We've, they've always needed to be wise in how they do that. And, um, and that they would just continue to be faithful and that um, they would represent substance as a church that values what they do and uh, values the important role that they have in the life of our kids. So would you just bow your heads and if you feel comfortable, you can put your hand out as we pray for them. Lord, we just are grateful um, for our men and our women, our educators in, in all facets of education represented here up on the stage. And God, we, we recognize the unique role that you've given them uh, to be people that reflect the light of Christ to our kids in our community that are coming from all kinds of different backgrounds and different walks of life. And Lord, there are, they have a unique challenge. They have unique opportunities. And so God, we just pray for them as this year uh, kicks off. And we just pray for grace and for mercy that your spirit would empower them, that your spirit would encourage them as they face barriers that are both known and unknown even today. And Lord, that you would just walk with them, uh, be their light and their guide and their presence. Lord, as they um, look out over maybe what for some is just feels like a very long year already, that you would give them the kind of renewal and refreshment they need by your word in this community uh, to continue to do the hard but good work that you've tasked them with. So Lord, a special blessing on them. Would you show your favor to them um, as they do this work that you've given them that comes from your hand? And Lord, would the gospel be that much richer in our community uh, because they are in it and they are gospel people. We thank you for that. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. All right, if you got your Bibles, grab them. Um, turn to Psalm 131, and if you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version, and you can stay with us on that. Week three in our, in our Psalms at Summer's End, I, I called it that because it just rhymed so well. And the second reason is because as we come into the fall, there can be some fear and trepidation. We kind of just prayed for it with our educators. There can also be this, just this sense of unknownness 
and may, maybe just some hesitation because you know things are kicking back into gear and there's routines that are going to be put back into place and that comes with all kinds of complications. And so uh, we want to acknowledge that. Um, we want to see how God's word speaks into some of these things for us. Uh, two weeks ago, we started with Psalm 46. We, we talked about changes and what happens when we are just confronted with changes or we feel like we are just, just being barrel over with changes and where God um, is in the changes with us and how he goes before us and how changes are one of the ways that, that he grows us. He doesn't just set us up to try to get through stuff but he sets us up in a way that he wants us to be there in the midst of the stuff. I'm, I'm saying stuff, but it's, you can fill in the blank there with all the different things that are coming in and out of your life. And then last week we looked at Psalm 4. We, we talked about what, what it means for us to have peace of mind. What does the Bible say about people that are, have been trusting for their salvation in Christ, that have come into this covenant community of believers, and yet we, we are still just being bombarded with things that threaten that peace that God promised us. And we, we learned last week that it is a peculiar kind of peace. And once again, it's not the kind of peace where God says, hey, let me remove you from all the junk so that you can feel the peace. But he says, what does it look like for you as you are understanding what it means to be a believer in Jesus to experience the peace when everything is collapsing? What does that look like? What does that mean for us as we're learning how to do that, as we're learning how to receive that? And so today, uh, they're, they're, these are all going to overlap in some ways. Today we're going to look at Psalm 131, and we're going to talk about what it means to have confidence. And not just confidence like we think of confidence, right? Not just confidence that just says you got this kind of confidence. But what does it look like to have a quiet assurance? What does it look like to have a humble confidence? In fact, does the Bible talk about confidence differently than the world kind of presents us with like being confident? Well, if we read Psalm 131, we see that it actually does. And hopefully this is going to be a blessing for us that... Um, don't really know how to define this word and have been confused as Christians who know that one of our prayers is that God would humble us, but at the same time also calls us to have a peculiar, I use that word a lot, a peculiar kind of confidence. So I have, I have a cat, and it's not just my cat, it's my wife's cat too. I'm not taking sole ownership over this, this beast. Um, but we call him, we call him Rax um, because he is a Maine Coon and also has the markings of a raccoon. Um, man, I know there's a lot of raccoon hate uh, in these parts because I know these dudes can tend to wreak havoc and you carry rabies too, which is another fun fact about them. Um, but they're also incredibly cute. So that's why we named our cat after a raccoon. Anyway, um, this is what's so crazy about this guy is whenever a storm is brewing, uh, like what happened yesterday, uh, in racks is all cozied up to me on the couch. Um, the minute he hears the first rumblings of thunder start to sound, I mean, just barely, like you barely hear that, that first like little rumbling sound. I mean, this guy starts growling. Uh, he leaps off the couch and then he goes and he hides on the stairs leading down to our basement. I'm not gonna lie, I'm not super sad about that because this guy doesn't leave me alone most of the time. Um, but the sound of thunder, it's so weird. It just unravels him. Like it makes him scared. He, he feels angry when it, when it happens. Somehow he thinks the thunder has this personal vendetta against him. So instead of staying close to me, the protector from thunder, right, 
Uh, he dashes to the stairwell. He sits there for hours. This is a brother who takes matters into his own hands. He's a cat. He's not really a brother. Um, he's an arrogant cat, really, when, when you think about it. Um, because he thinks that somehow that stairwell is going to give him more protection and more calm and more peace than hanging out with the, the king and queen of thunder, you know. Um, but this is a ridiculous illustration <laughs> of what happens to us when we are faced with something on the horizon, which, by the way, happens constantly for us, something on the horizon that is much bigger than we are, and it strips us of our confidence, and it causes fear, causes anxiety to settle in, and we respond to that in really interesting ways. We respond to that by taking really matters into our own hands, if we're going to sum it up, and that's what we try to do. Instead of staying put, like I wish racks would do, kind of, we stir, and we think that we can save the day. And what we'll see here in Psalm 131 is that David, who wrote this psalm, shows us a different way. Let me read Psalm 131. It says this. It's three verses. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 131. I actually want to read a slightly different translation uh, for you for Psalm 131 here. Because I like what this said as well. And this will give us a little more, kind of broaden our, our, our sense of it. And it says this. God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. So this is a type of psalm. All the psalms are, are different, and there's different types of psalm. This type of psalm is called a song of ascents. Maybe it says that at the, at the top of the psalm in your Bible, which were thought to be songs that pilgrims would sing or recite as they ascended to Jerusalem for all the different festivals and days of worship that people had to travel to Jerusalem for. And in fact, many interpreters of this passage believe that this was David's response to King Saul and those in King Saul's court that were and had accused David of pursuing the kingdom when Saul was still king, having this ambition where he was just pursuing to take the kingdom from Saul that he already knew God would one day give him and he was trying to speed along the process. We know, of course, if we read the story of David and in, in, in the books of First and Second Samuel, that wasn't true. David was patient. He waited for God in hope for what God had promised him. But that gives us a little context for what kind of psalm this is and why it's called a song of ascent, people reading it as they're ascending to Jerusalem for a feast day or a worship day. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great theologians from the 19th century, he said this about Psalm 131. He said, it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. 
And that is so true for us as we see what David is trying to get to in these three short verses. And he uses really interesting language here as we dive into verse 1. Other psalms, if you've noticed, they they speak of lifting our eyes to the hills, like in Psalm 121, to to fix our gaze on, on, on God's glory. In other words, look up. See who God is. See his majesty. Be kind of taken back by the awe and the majesty of God. That's what Psalm 121 is telling us to do, to remember where our hope comes from. Fix our gaze on God's glory, his provision, his deliverance, his salvation. To be people who look upward like a child looking up at a parent. To receive encouragement and comfort and security. So the, the phrasing here, at first, it, it sounds a little strange when you kind of think of other psalms and where they take us uh, with that. But David here is doing something a little bit different and, of course, not contradictory. David has his eyes fixed downward so that his heart remains upward. So he has, he has his gaze down because he wants the focus of his heart to go up because of his eyes, he's saying, are on things that occupy his mind, that are beyond him, that are too marvelous for him, that redirect his heart, then he's in a bad place. So he brings his eyes down as a way to refocus his heart up to where it needs to be focused, right? You've heard the phrase, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. I feel like I'm telling myself that phrase every day, right? You crave more than you consume. It means that you're easily deceived. What you think you can take in, what you think you can handle, you can't. You can't handle what you think you can handle. And in fact, one of the storylines of scripture is of people who are doing things and engaging in things and have, wait for it, ambition towards things that God has not given them ambition to have. I can do this. I can conquer this. I can take this. And all the while something wrong is happening to our soul. Our soul is getting muddied. It's getting perplexed. It's, It's finding itself in a place now that is sharing space with God, right? That happens to us so easily. That's what David's talking about. He's saying, I I can't let my eyes focus on all this stuff that I want to try to take control over because it's going to jack up my heart. It's going to mess up my heart to be in the place that God has called my heart to be in, which is not just this out of control, ambitious heart, but something that is pulled back and something that is in a place that looks to God in a very different way than how the world and how our own hearts would tell us that we need to go after and attack things. Does that make sense? What we know about the heart and what we know about the eyes is this. Two things scripture tells us. Deception comes from the heart. The book of Jeremiah, we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things. We just don't think that, right? We think, no, no, sometimes I can be fooled but I'm kind of sharp. I kind of got this. Jeremiah says, no, 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 that's great. And that's cute. But what's really going on here is that you have a heart that is always moving in a direction that tells you something about yourself that scripture is saying is untrue, which is that you don't got it. Your, your goal in life is not about just to take every hill that is in front of you for the sake of conquering and being somebody that overcomes, right? God has a a different plan 
for your life and your heart deceives you into looking up and, and seizing things that occupy your mind that are too great and too marvelous. Well, we also know about eyes that pride enters in through the eyes, 1 John 2.16. David is doing something different here. David is doing something incredibly hard. Why? Because all those things I'm describing that we're going to talk about for the rest of the sermon are super complex, right? Because our hearts are kind of bouncy, right? And our eyes are kind of, they're going up and they're going down. They're going all over the place. David struggled with that. It's the same thing with David, right? But this is what he's doing here in Psalm 131 is he's lifting his heart to God so that it transforms from being deceived by immature wants to being content with mature desires, the mature desires that God has actually given him. He doesn't have haughty eyes because his gaze upon God is doing something, and what it's doing is it's dimming his youthful self-assurance. That's what's happening right there. David remembers who he is in this psalm. He's just a dude. He's finite. He has all these reasons to think he's more than just a person. But he remembers, I'm just finite. I have limitations. I know who I'm not, is what David is saying in Psalm 131. So I am, I am confident that I can run a mile right now and, and not collapse. Okay, I don't know if that's true. Um, but what I'm not confident in is, is, is running a marathon, okay? Um, I'm not trained to do it. In fact, it would do me harm to try, right? You guys don't have to laugh at that, it's just true. I need to know my limitations. So for me to sign up for, I don't know, whatever, that turkey trot that everybody does, you're like, Ronnie, that's a 5K, not a marathon. <laughs> like I said, I can only do a mile. But for me to do that, for me to not prepare myself for that, to me to think I'm in a place that can handle that without really being able to handle that means bad things will happen to me physically that I could have avoided had I had a greater self-knowledge about who I actually was, right? David is humbled here. David is humbled by the realization that his mind can't fathom what only the mind of God can fathom. Gosh, that's so hard for us, isn't it? It's so hard for us to admit that. It's so hard for, maybe it's easy for us to intellectually admit that. It's so hard for us to live into that. And in fact, his response here, it, it kind of recalls Job, the book of Job. Remember Job, who in just a fortnight, um, everything is taken away from him. Uh, his, children are, his children are killed. All of his land and his cattle is destroyed. And almost everything in his life gets removed in a day. And then God ends up rebuking Job because Job wasn't seeing it all clearly. On one hand, he was a righteous man and he didn't curse God for the stuff that was happening to him and all of this stuff that was befalling him. So he didn't curse God. He said, what am I not, am I not supposed to, am, am I only supposed to receive blessings from God? No, Job had some knowledge, but he also didn't understand that everything God was up to. And so... He replies to God by saying, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So you get Job who is acknowledging there's just things that God is doing that I need to remember that I'm never going to have 
the full picture of, and that's where trust comes in. That's where humility comes in. Do you find yourself, do you find your mind primarily occupied with things of which you just don't have any hand in changing, maybe? You don't have any hand in altering. How much do you worry about things that are out of your control, out of your power? There's a massive tension in all of us that wants to understand the mind of God. And listen, let's do a little qualification. Though God has revealed to us everything we can know about him in Scripture, and he has, in many ways, it's it's really just an introduction for us. It's kind of an introduction to the greatest novel ever written. We got a couple of chapters, and those are and they're big chapters. And they tell us a lot. And they tell us that everything that God was good enough to give us to understand, and not only that, but to continue to mine down and explore more deeply. He's that good, right? But we only get a small glimpse of the story of our stories. The psalmist here is saying, I don't let my mind get cluttered and distracted with things that God has not given me the mind to comprehend yet. You know, when I was six years old, so long ago, I can surprise that it was, you know, surprised that time even went back that far. Um, but when I was six, my mom did not sit down with me with her CPA and start explaining how the new tax laws worked. She just never did that at six years old. When I was eight, my dad didn't attempt to explain all the relational and communication issues that would surface after 10 years into my marriage. I mean, obviously none of those surfaced, but you know what I mean, if they had. The point is I wouldn't have had the capacity to understand any of that in, at six and eight years old. Uh, at, at 50 years old, uh, you know, just to be fair, right? It was better that I trusted them with the knowledge that needed to be kept by them, right? Look at what David says in verse two, but I've calmed, but given all of that, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. So we get the image here as we get into verse two of a nursing child that at one time would cry frantically when they want to be fed and the, the struggle they might have when it's time to move on to solid food. For those of you who've had kids, you, you remember that transition or you're in that transition. It's super fun, but this is what happens, right? You got these kids, right? And they're, they're crazy, right? I mean, you got these young babies, and they're, they're angry a lot. All they know is that, man, they, they want to be fed. I want my milk, right? Like that's what they want. They just want what they want and they're angry if you don't provide it for them, right? That's what goes on with infants. And then at some point, they move on to solid food. There's a change, right? You have established this relationship of trust with your kid. And now they're not screaming in anger, because they're not getting their milk. They're screaming in anger for other things, right? We get all that. But there's, there's a relationship of trust now. There's a, there's, a, there's a particular kind of quietness and humility with them than there, than, than there was when they were six months old than they are when they're three years old. There's a difference. There is what we would call uh, maturity there, right? It's a sign of growth. Their body is now reaching the next step in their digestive maturity. They still need their mother, but it's not 
a need that is filled with, we'd say, infantile desperation, right? It's different. David is saying, like a child who's moved on to solid food, I've matured. I trust in God now differently to provide me with what I need. I'm not just kicking and screaming and struggling. And his hope was that Israel would share this same calm and this same quiet hope in verse 3 when he says, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope now and hope always. And as the Israelites ascended to Jerusalem, we are told they would recite this psalm. They would be reminded who was still feeding and who was still caring for them. So just like with a parent-child relationship, the parent doesn't stop feeding the child, but the child's response to the parent changes, right? It matures. It trusts that the meal is provided, right? Same with the Israelites. They didn't need to be fearful or stirring or concerned with things that were outside of their control, that only God was in control of, only God was going to provide. These were people with a long-standing hope. And they could look back at the love and reliability of a God who had long-term plans for them in the future and be confident in him for them. Piece of cake, right? Except the Israelites didn't do a great job at that. And we don't either, which is why it's so great that we have Psalm 131 to encourage us. So this is what I want to talk about for the rest of our time, is what are some of the ways that we can develop that kind of Christian confidence, that kind of peculiar, humble, and quiet confidence that we see David having here in Psalm 131. Well, the first thing is this. We do it by having honest conversations with God. Firstly, by having an honest... Have you ever had an honest conversation with somebody? Had a couple of honest conversations with our elder team this week, and it was incredibly freeing. It was hard, but it was incredibly freeing, and I felt a weight and a burden release from me. Maybe you've never had an honest conversation with God. Maybe you're someone who talks to God in a way that feels like, you know, the pastor growing up preached like this in his pastor voice, you know? Like a, like a radio announcer from the 50s, right? Yeah, you have no worries about that here. Um, but maybe that's, maybe that's your relationship with God. Or, may, or maybe it feels like, man, this is how I had to talk to my dad. You know, or a, or, or a boss or a teacher. I just don't feel like I can, I can relax. I, f- I feel like he wants me to say something a certain way. And that's one of the great things about the Psalms is that it proves that he doesn't. doesn't mean be disrespectful. But it means sometimes you will be. And he can take it. He can handle it. But one of the ways that we develop Christian maturity, which leads to then Christian confidence, is that we have an honest conversation with God. David removes himself from the noise here. And he speaks to God and says, here's where I'm at. Here's my case before you. I'm lowering my eyes because I want to lift up my heart. When's the last time that you did that? When you reflected on your life, when you just took a minute to shut everything down, all the distractions, all the social media, all the entertainment, when's the last time you just took a minute to experience some quiet before the Lord and, and have that be the opportunity to come to some realizations that needed to be brought before him? 
That's always the question for us. By the way, that's always the invitation for us. Will we lay our lives before the Lord? Will we open this book and say, speak to me? And God's not saying any new things to us, right? Everything he wants to say to us is contained here. So if we want to hear the voice of the Lord in our lives, we open the words that he's given to us and we take them seriously and we listen to them and we say, I, I, I can't do that. And he says, now we're talking. Now we can talk because I'm going to help you because you have my spirit. And because you're having this honest conversation with me, I'm going to start revealing some things to you. I'm going to start healing some things. I'm going to start working some things out in your life that have been so hard for you to work out. And you know what? You might need to talk to some people. You might need to get some counsel. You might need to get some therapy. This is not going to be some overnight thing. But if you talk to me honestly and you lay those things and you're willing to surface those things that are hitting against you, you're going to feel my presence. And you're going to feel my help and my hope and my love for you. So we develop Christian confidence and humility quietly by having honest conversations with God. Secondly, we, we do it by keeping God in his rightful place. We keep God where God is. So God is here, but he's also there, right? He simultaneously is the creator of the universe and the ruler of the earth, as well as being our friend. And there's, there's some interesting tension in that, good tension, I would say, in that. But we keep God in his rightful place. Psalm 138 says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He's high, but he regards the lowly. He has time for us. He has time for you when you come before him and say, God, I just don't know what's going on. My eyes are, are constantly out and they're shooting everywhere. And, and they're, they're fooling me into thinking I can do stuff and be somebody and attain something and have ambition for things when you're just saying, hey, pull back and let me work those things. Let me be the one who has prominence in your life. We keep God in his rightful place because really our tendency is we forget who our boss is right? Man, we are just not the boss. We are not the boss of our lives, man. Tell that to your kid. You probably do. Just so you know, Timmy, you're not the boss here. I'm not talking about Tim Black when I use the word Timmy, you know, but we are not the boss. God's not a human boss either who forgets things or, or drops the ball. We don't have to compensate for what we think the Lord isn't taking care of in our lives. We can, we can walk in the things he's given us because he walks before us and he walks with us. He's, he's not somebody that should cause us to be prideful enough to think that somehow we need to run the show because he's just ignoring or he's busy or he's uncaring. That's not the God of scripture. That's not the God who saved you. Our lives have a ruler. Our church has a senior pastor. His name is Jesus. I don't know how much clearer to say it than that, right? To humble ourselves means we put ourselves under someone who is over all. And I don't know about you, but that should, you should kind of collapse back into that. That should let some weight be removed from your shoulders this morning, right? 
Because if you're like me, you take the weight on your shoulders because you are ambitious and because you got eyes that are going everywhere. But we keep God in his rightful place and God gives us a humble and a quiet confidence. And then we let God be our all. So how do we develop Christian confidence? Well, we do it by letting God be our everything, by letting God be our, be our all. And this goes in line with becoming content in the Lord and learning that he's doing something that you can't see, but it's going to be wonderful because that's the only way he works. That's the only way that he operates. How do we define contentment? Now, that is such a hard word, such a hard thing for us to even, even if we can grasp the definition of that word, it's such a hard thing for us to live into. But what is contentment? Is it lack of ambition? Is it just settling? Well, the psalmist here describes it as a quiet and a calm soul that is secure in the care of a mother's or a parent's arms, trusting that our needs will be taken care of. Ambition is such a tricky thing. Ambition is a really insidiously tricky thing. Ambition is kind of an unquenchable desire or a pursuit for something that the Lord has not granted. And when that happens, what we have is an ambition then that is self-centered and is all about receiving things that we want for the sake of, of our own glory in a sense, right? Ambition can be a weird thing, right? We're, we're just, man, we are just climbing the corporate ladder. We are just going after things. We are saving our money. We have our eye on a prize. We have a life that is in constant pursuit of something that's going to make us more comfortable, that's going to give us what we have always desired and always dreamed of. Because for some reason, we think that those desires and dreams we had at like eight years old and 16 years old and 20 years, like those are supposed to be the ones that stuck. Like those were okay. We just got to find a way to materialize those dreams. Never thinking like maybe it was the wrong dream. Or maybe the way that we are pursuing that dream for the sake of our own wealth, for the sake of our own health, for the sake of our own idealized world is not the right pursuit. Ambition is a weird thing. It can be something that we seek to the degree that it merely increases our greed and our power or pride. Those aren't good ambitions. The example of David was that he was patient as the Lord took him from this shepherd boy, this lowly shepherd boy to a shepherd king. What drives us, you and me, to contentment? Well, it's a heartfelt trust in God's trustworthy provision. I can pray for things, and you should pray for things, and then God will say, I'm going to give you this thing. And then God will sometimes say, I will not give you this thing. And then oftentimes God says, you don't know, but I'm making you wait. And we have our answer always right there hanging in the balance. What David here is encouraging us to do is to be grateful for the things that we have and glad for the things we haven't been given because they're most likely things that would not be good for us, at least today, right? Does that make sense? 
And we should also remember what we see in Scripture is that God deals with the ungodly and the wicked by giving them exactly what they want, which proves to be their undoing. The wicked prosper, Scripture tells us. How do they prosper? By getting the things they pursue that eventually prove their undoing. So when you have prayed for something, you've said, God, I even think my motivations are right in this. Sometimes God withholds it because in his gracious and fatherly heart for you, it would be something that would be your undoing. I, that is so hard for me. I don't know why God hasn't granted some of the things I've asked for. It's painful sometimes because sometimes those things aren't about me. They're, they're about the flourishing and the good of someone else. He just keeps pulling back. It's a not yet. Maybe it's a never. Do I trust in his goodness? Do I trust in his mercy? Do I trust that somehow he knows something that I don't know? I mean, I trust that you all know well, a lot of stuff that I don't know. How do I not trust the creator and savior of the universe for the same thing? And the result of this is that we will have a humble confidence because arrogance is just self-assurance born from insecurity. Let me say that again. Arrogance is just self-assurance born from insecurity. Confidence, and the kind we're talking about here, is assurance born from experience. I've experienced God going before me. I've experienced God not giving me what I asked for, giving me what I asked for, making me wait, and yet, this is the thing that he does in my life to calm and quiet my soul and to produce this thing called hope in me. David is saying, from this time forth, let your confidence and hope be in someone who is forever and not a collapsible thing or a collapsible person. Israel had a history of not doing this. Israel was crazy. Israel was like, the, they were like the Duncan yo-yos of the faith, Right? One day they're serving God, the next day they're selling their souls to foreign and false gods. Our struggle comes from the same thing, right? We have a suspicion, we have an unbelief that God is going to dash our hopes, that he's going to crush our confidence. And again, those are all our definitions of hope and confidence. But humble confidence, like David is talking about, comes from having honest conversations with God, keeping God in his rightful place, letting him be over all. It comes from recognizing, listen, the complexity of our tendencies to either ignore God altogether or never learn to take the courageous steps that God matures and grows us to take. I want to read you a quote here from a Eugene Peterson who's talking about Psalm 131. This is what he said. I thought this was so good. Listen to this. I'm going to read it slowly. He says, Christian faith is not neurotic dependency, but it is childlike trust. We do not have a God who forever indulges our whims, but a God whom we trust with our destinies. The Christian is not a naive, innocent infant who has no identity apart from a, of, uh, from a feeling of being comforted and protected and catered to, but a person who has discovered an identity given by God which can be enjoyed best and fully in a voluntary trust in God. 
We do not cling to God desperately out of fear and the panic of insecurity. We come to him freely in faith and in love. Man, well, there's a life journey for all of us. And then he finishes by saying this. He says, and this is what Psalm 131 nurtures, a quality of calm confidence and quiet strength that knows the difference, listen to this, between unruly arrogance and faithful aspiration. See, aspiration is different than ambition. What aspiration does is it goes to God. It brings our ambitions to God. And it says, is this something I should aspire to? Is this something that would be good for me? What is this something coming out of in my heart? So ambition is one thing, but aspiration, faithful aspiration, that puts God at the center of those things that we are ambitious for is a completely different thing. And it's how you and me grow into Christian maturity and quiet, humble confidence. So he says, let me read it again, a quality of calm confidence and quiet strength, this is what Psalm 131 nurtures, that knows the difference between unruly arrogance and faithful aspiration. It knows how to discriminate between infantile dependency, we talked about that, and childlike trust, and chooses to aspire and to trust and to sing, I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby who is content. It would be God's aim for Christians to have a confidence that comes from the assurance that God will remain all that God is. The Christian can trust that. You can trust that. You can trust that God will remain God. In other words, if you put your hope in a person whose words will never change because by nature he cannot change, then you can live with a quiet assurance that God will always love you. And there's not a decision he makes that is not in your best interest, even when it's painful in the waiting. Or even when it feels like, why isn't he acting right now? We don't have answers to those questions other than to know that a good God, an unchanging God, a fully gracious, merciful, loving, compassionate God, one who has 100% of all of those categories, including holiness, means that there's no wrong move he makes in our life. And when we don't understand it, and when we kick and we scream, he says, that's all right. That's okay. That's all right. Kick and scream a little. Or a lot. That's all right. You're going to come around. You keep having a heart that goes up to me. You let your eyes come down. And I will show you what hope is. And I will mature you like a child that is content in its mother's arms. We can depend on God. A God that will always love you, God that will always listen to you, never leave you, never lie to you. It's a lot of L's. But here's the thing. He proved he is all those things by sending Jesus. He proved those things are true because of Jesus Christ. We can trust God based on the track record 
of Jesus. David was writing about this without fully knowing he was writing about that, actually, right? So as Israel ascended to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, what this song reminded them of was that they were anticipating the day when a different king, an eternal king from the throne of David would reign forever. Israel's ultimate hope would come in the form of Jesus many years later. Their hope wasn't simply for a season. Their hope wasn't simply for a lifetime. It was for an eternity. I need more than just hope for the end of this week. You need more hope than just for today. Because today's going to be over and it's going to be dark. It's going to be nighttime. And it's probably going to be storming because it's Ohio. Maybe snowing because it's Ohio. You need a hope that goes for eternity. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom there will be no end. This is ultimately what Psalm 131 is pointing us to. What would it look like for you to put your eyes down today? Go before the Lord in quiet hope, praying for calmness of soul, remembering that whatever you are facing today will be covered by the loving heart and able hands of Jesus Christ today and tomorrow. That you can have assurance, that you can have confidence that Jesus has you. He has this. Like the worst thing we, I could have said to all these educators up here a minute ago was, you got this, guys. You got this. I'm not going to make too big of a thing over that, right? It's kind of a nice thing to say to people. It's an encouraging thing. In an ultimate sense, it's horrendous. Because the reality is, and they're all not going to like me after I say this, is they don't got it. I don't got it. I don't got being a pastor. They don't got being educators. You ain't got whatever it is that you got that you need to get. Man, this is getting bad. It's getting bad. We're at the end. It's getting bad, getting sloppy. But you don't have it. Praise God that you don't got this. Or else why be here? Why give your heart and your soul to the one who has you firmly in the grip of his hand? And his name is Jesus. You don't have this. And you don't have to flex because of that. It means you also don't have to despair when things collapse around you. And here's why. And we read it earlier. I'm going to read it again and I'm going to pray from Hebrews 10, 21. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's salvation, the effects of it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's the kind of humble confidence that God draws us to as he draws near to us and we reset our gaze down and lift up our hearts to him. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 131 and just the encouraging words, the difficult words. Lord, I pray that as a church you would help us not to occupy our eyes with things too great, too marvelous, too beyond us. But Lord, that you would pull us back and have hearts that are lifted up to you, God. That you would quiet 
calm our soul, that we would trust you, that we would have a quiet confidence in you, hoping in you for this time and forevermore. God, only you can do that work in changing us to be these kind of women and men that look to you and hope in you. And I pray that 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 hope is more known and more felt and more discovered today than it's ever been because you are on the throne and you are our God. And for that, we thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.